The word justification, I'm going to read it to you just so that you know I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 15 uh, through 16, those two verses um, are the ones that I'm going to read, and I'll show you how Paul kind of now introduces this word justify or justification into this argument, into this line of reasoning. So Paul writes about this, and basically he assumes that the people to whom he's writing already understand it. They're already familiar with this particular word. <coughs> we're not going to assume that here. We're going to make sure that we make sure that we understand this particular word. In fact, um, I've literally heard different types of um, interviews with people just kind of walking up to people on the street. I heard this one interview that was done by this one radio broadcast, and they actually went to a Christian college, and they interviewed all sorts of people literally coming out of class, asking them, what is justification? What is justification by grace? What is justification by faith? And almost every single person they asked had no clue what they were talking about. So the point that I want to make is that I understand this is sort of a large theological concept. I don't want the concept of theology to scare you or to kind of cause you to be like, I don't know what this is going to be about. Should I have chosen to come this Sunday? Yes, you should have been here. You should be here. I'm glad you're here. Because I really believe that ultimately at the end of the day, this concept of uh, justification will affect the way that you live. I'll give you an example of how this works practically. When Paul introduces this word, well, let's just read it and I'll talk about it. Verse 15 says this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we have believed, or we who through Jesus Christ have also believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law, but because, of, but, but because by the works of the law no man will be justified. So Paul introduces the word justified. Now the context of it, we saw last week, is Paul is actually writing about this little disagreement, this argument that he had with Peter, where he rebukes Peter. And so the whole context of this is what was happening was this guy Peter, you know, Apostle Peter, was hanging out with uh, Paul and a bunch of other believers in the particular city called Antioch. And so Peter originally was hanging out with a bunch of Gentile guys, non-Jewish guys. We talked about this last week. He's like eating barbecue, hanging out by the barbecue with all of his brothers out there, you know, eating shrimp cocktail, drinking lemonade. It's wonderful. Everything's great until these guys from Jerusalem, they show up. And these are hardcore, hard-lined, religious-type uh, Jewish people. These are the ones that are all about the cultural Jewish concept and law. These are the ones that dress in a particular Jewish garb. They uh, have the, you know, the sideburns, the little curly things on the side. Um, you know, that's fine. There's no, no problem with those guys dressing like that. But the problem was is that a lot of people believe that these guys were sort of forcing or straightjacketing their cultural uh, understanding of how they approach God upon these Gentile people. It's creating this awkwardness. And so Peter, rather than, you know, continuing to hang out with these guys and eat pork sandwiches and ribs and all this good stuff, and, and then Peter basically pulls away from these guys and walks and starts hanging out with all these Jewish people. And so Paul, he says, I rebuke Peter because he's not walking in step with the gospel. And as soon as Paul done, is done talking about not walking in step with the gospel, then he basically says, look, don't you guys know they were justified? Not by works of the law, but by grace. So here's the very quick practical analysis of this is really boils down to this. Paul's point, even putting this in the, in the context of this letter to the Galatians, is this idea of justification by faith, by grace, actually plays out in our lifestyle. For example, if God, if God has accepted you or me on the basis of Jesus alone, and not on the basis of my culture, not on the basis of my religious duties, not on the basis of the way I comb my hair, not on the basis of the type of music that I listen to, not on the basis of the type of t-shirts I wear, and not on the basis of the type of denomination I belong to, then why is it that oftentimes we choose to fellowship or hang out with people that are only uniquely in those same types of spheres of life as we? Or go to the same church as we. Or wear the same type of hairdo as we. Or dress the same way that we do. His whole point is that you don't understand justification properly. If you look at other people like the way Peter was doing and saying, I can't hang out with you because the religious people showed up. i got to act religious 
and I can't really hang out with you anymore. I can't be Gentile anymore, act Gentile anymore, because i got to act Jewish now. And so therefore, I, I can't hang out with you, can't have dinner with you, can't talk around a table with you anymore. We can't be friends anymore, because i got to act Jewish. Paul's like, you're walking in contradiction, Peter. You're not living the gospel out properly. In other words, you don't understand justification by faith. You may theoretically claim to understand it. You may pass the test. If you took some sort of theology quiz and the main item on the quiz was justification, you might get all the answers right and get an A+. But how are you doing in terms of living it out? Let me tell you very quickly how this oftentimes works out even in modern day churches. I see it all the time. Christians are like, you know what, look, I belong to this particular denomination. Never talk to the dude or the woman over in that other denomination because we're right, they're wrong. So wait a minute, what you're basically saying is you are justified by being a Calvary Chapel dude or a Vineyard dude or a Presbyterian dude or a Catholic dude or what? That's how you're made right with God? Is by your denomination, by your religion, by the way that you dress? You're not made right by that. That's not how you're made right with God. You're made right with God on the basis of Jesus alone. So if Jesus accepts all people, all races, by them confessing their sin and receives them, so therefore we should be living in that, walking in that. So the point of the matter is, is that justification is Paul's antidote towards walking out of step with the gospel. You understand that? It's a big deal. It's a big deal in today's culture. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Christianity gets caricatured. Things like The Simpsons, all right? Why Flanders even exists is because he's this guy that's portrayed as this uniquely religious dude that only cares about himself, that is always very critical of, you know, Bart Simpson and all, you know, everybody else around him because nobody fits in Flanders' world except Flanders and other Flanders like Type people. Does that make sense? So don't sin the sin of Flanders. Rather walk the path of Jesus, which is he accepts all people through repentance of him, of their sin and following after him. So therefore, walking in step with the gospel would be recognizing and understanding this very practical doctrine called justification. All right, that's my quick little intro. Barely even got to like the first sentence on my page. So here's what we're going to do. The first thing I want to jump into is I want to talk about the fact that God is righteous. So everything that we're going to look at here today basically begins with God. It starts with God. Any good subject matter about the Bible is always going to begin with God. Anything that has to do with the New Testament begins with God. Some of you might be like, I thought it began by me saying the prayer and asking Jesus into my heart. Actually, it began with God. God opened your eyes and allowed you to say the prayer to receive Jesus into your heart. You have to understand everything begins with God. So I want you to understand a couple things that we'll put up here on the screen. First of all, we see God as a creator. He's a designer, architect. He's involved with all the intimate details of everything in this world. Created you, created everything. Everything you can imagine. Everything that's visible. And the Bible even says in even everything that's invisible. Microscopic particles, things, atoms. Everything seen and unseen God, the good creator, designed, architected, and built and made. The second thing we see is that God is king. So not only does God create all things and not just walk away from it and just sort of wind it up like a little, you know, make something and then walk away from it, or like a little kid making Legos or Lincoln Logs and just walking away from it and letting it be, but God actually creates all things and then he resides over it. He exercises dominion over it. That's what we talk about when God is king. When God is king, God is king over all things. And because God is creator, because God is king, he's also lawgiver. Now I wanted to try to logically walk with you and think about law. Why this is significant. Now, we know in our culture, in our society, everything has to have some sort of rule or law. So sometimes when we talk about law in the Bible, we think of law in a very negative connotation. We think of it as, this is horrible, laws are bad, laws are wicked, we want to fight against laws. The big theological word for that is antinomianism, the idea that we live without any type of law. We're all about big words here at Calvary Slow. The point that I would make is this, is that God is a good God, actually designs and creates good laws by which uh, 
would allow for good peace, shalom, to happen amongst his good creation. you got to see it as such. If you look at it as God hateful, God angry, God trying to destroy your life and restrain your life and, and ruin your life, then you, you, you misunderstood the concept behind these ideas of laws. Is God set these things basically for the protection of the people. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. This is one of the reasons why God says don't kill. We don't want to kill because we know that kill, killing, for one, destroys life and also destroys relationships, right? You live next to your neighbor, next to your neighbor lives next to you, and he comes over and he kills, whacks one of your kids, all right? Things are not going to, things are going to be a little bit tense between the two of you now. It won't be fellowship. You guys won't be sharing things. You won't be coming to the next door and asking for a cup of sugar anymore. You'll actually want to just kill each other. It'd be like a bunch of rednecks feuding, all right? It's not a good way to live. And so what God does is he designs these laws by which we live under so that we can actually enjoy life. Uh, Another one, the example, he says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Everybody knows it's not good to steal or rob someone else's wife. I mean, if you're married here today, you know what that means. If you even for a moment begin to think, what would happen if someone came and seduced your wife or seduced your husband and took him away from you and had sex with him? You'd be bummed. You're right. You should be bummed. Because that's, that is, it's dehumanizing for one to you because someone stole something from you. It's as if they are treating you as a non-living human being or non-essential that you don't have feelings, you don't matter, you don't care to anybody. And so therefore I can just steal from you, rob from you. It's no big deal because after all, I'm better than you. But really the whole point of laws and rules is to really elevate life, to establish life so that there is shalom, okay? We see this example of this even in homes, all right? Every home, if you're here, you're a parent, um, or if one day you're going to have kids, if you're here, uh, one day the chances are you are going to end up getting married. So if you're like 31, 35 years old and you're like, I'm not married yet, very good likelihood you will. Statistically, you will, all right? So don't stress it. It might come a little bit longer. It's very possible that God is actually saving you from a really bad relationship because he loves you. So the point is, back on track, is if you end up getting married and you have kids, the family that you have, you will establish rules of order. Not because you're a bad parent. Not some bad parents just throw out rules just because they're lame. But the point of the matter is, all good parents establish rules. Like the no whacking rule, all right? This basically says, don't whack your younger brother. I don't want your younger brother to get whacked because I love the younger brother and I love you. And when I see you guys whacking each other, fighting each other, it makes me really upset because that is my son. That's my daughter. You're whacking. I don't like that because after all, we want to go out and get ice cream or buy frozen yogurt or go to the beach. And I don't want you to have this big gash in your forehead because I love you. It takes away joy. You can't enjoy life. You can't enjoy Disneyland because you got a broken leg because your older brother whacked you. Because I love you guys, the rule is don't whack each other. Just love each other. Serve one another. Take care of one another. Laws we have in our family are meant to provide order and decency. It raises the level of humanization where we recognize each person has dignity and value and respect. So the point that I would make is that these rules and laws are good. We have the same type of thing even in downtown. There's laws downtown, AG, Paso. Uh, You walk downtown, you know, there's certain laws that they have. They don't want you to be drunk in public. Why? Because everybody hates a public drunk. They're bumping into people, causing problems and uproars. You're walking downtown, they trip you. It's horrible. Throwing up on the sidewalk, it's just disgusting. All right, I don't want to go downtown and have my kids step and throw up. It's a horrible way to live. So there are rules that say don't get drunk in public, and if you do, we'll take care of that. So the point of the matter is it's to provide life. Nobody walks likes walking down gum alley. I mean, the smell's already pretty nasty. But when you add throw up down gum alley because everything's coming out of, you know, downtown brew and they're just throwing up all over the place, it just makes for a bad experience. It makes for a bad experience even worse. I mean, gum alley's already kind of nasty as it is. But to add throw up to that smell as well, it's just horrible. So the point that I would make is there's rules that they establish so that we can live and have shalom, have peace. They have the same thing. You walk in the stores. They say, don't wear a shirt. Well, why? Because nobody wants to see some dude with a very hairy chest and back walking around in a store. So they say, put on a shirt. All right? That's very offensive to see some guy look like a Wookiee walking around. It's horrible. 
Right? We all want to have joy. We all want to just enjoy our time in coals. Just enjoying life. We don't want to have to look at some guy with a carpet on his back. All right? So the way that we go against that is we just establish rules to say we want everybody to live peacefully, to enjoy life, so that we can enjoy society. All right? God is a judge. And God establishes rules so that we can have order, so that we can have shalom. So that's the point. God is judge. So not only is God lawgiver, but he's also finally, in the final sense, he's also judge. So God, creator of all things, God architects all things. God is king, is part of his own creation. He's not distant. He's not like the pantheist would say, way beyond. Or he's not like panentheist would say that he is the creation. God is distinct, separate from creation. God created all things, but God rules over creation as a good God. God establishes rules. And ultimately, at the end of the day, God will also judge those who break those rules. This is actually very good news. We all, to some degree, more or less, have some sort of idea of justice. Every single one of us do. We may not like justice when we find ourselves as the guilty party, but we love justice if somebody comes against us and offends us. If someone stole your car, if someone raped your child, you would want justice. Some of you guys are probably familiar with that whole scenario that had taken place over the past several years. There was a a father, he had a wife and two daughters. Uh, These two guys come into the house, they break in, they basically whack the guy in the forehead, knock him out cold, stick him down in the basement, tie him up to something down there, and basically over the next several hours proceed to tie his wife and his two young daughters, I think ages 14 to maybe 11, to uh, a bedpost. They begin to rape the daughters, rape the wife, and finally they tell the wife to go out to the store or go out to the bank to withdraw as much money as she can to come back so they can take the money and leave. She comes back, takes the money out, doesn't have that much money. They come back, they proceed to continue to rape the wife, rape the two daughters, douse them both, all of them with, um, with, you know, gasoline, and they set the house on fire. The father somehow manages to escape from the place where he was located. He's the only one that survives. Wife, two daughters, raped and killed after hours and hours and hours of torment. Stands before the judge, and the judge finally renders this verdict and says, these two guys are going to go to the, to the electric chair. They're going to die. They're going to die. It's a good, that's a great judgment. Great rendering of a judgment. If the judge was basically like, you know what? You guys had a hard life. Your dad yelled at you growing up. Unfortunately, had a bad day. You just lost your job. I totally understand. That's happened to me periodically. Everybody deserves a break. You're off the hook. You did a horrible thing, but everybody you know, deserves a break somewhere. You're off the hook. You can go home. Everybody would freak out. There would be riots. Rightfully so. Justly. There's our word. Justly so. Because justice was abated. Justice was averted rather than rendered. Okay? So when we talk about justice, what we're basically saying is God, who is creator of all things, designer of all things, king over all things, makes rules over all things. He sets the rules, sets the the laws to govern, to bring about shalom, but he will also be the one to render a judgment over all things. All right? And his judgment, we're told in the Bible, will be just. Here's a couple verses. Psalm 50 verse 6 says, heavens declare the righteous or declare his righteousness and God himself is judge. In the New Testament, we see Timothy writing this, or Paul writing this to Timothy. He says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. So he wants us to understand that God will, on a particular day, yet some point in the future, will render a verdict, render a judgment, and he will bring to quick judgment all those who have violated his holy, just, righteous rule that is intended to bring about life. So what I need you to understand here, logically, this is not this concept, it's it's not that difficult to really understand this concept. This is all simple stuff. All of us, literally, you go to bed at night and you sleep on this stuff. All right, let me tell you what I mean. If you lived in another country, which is oftentimes what ends up happening for the majority of the world, that there is not this type of law in order in those countries. So if someone comes in, in the middle of the night, break into your house, rape your wife, rape your kids, and ultimately take everything, steal everything you got, set your house on fire, cut your arm off, and you end up becoming this lone survivor, and that's it. And you go down to the local police, and you find out that it was actually the local police that ordered the hit. 
So you're like, I can go to some sort of a lawyer. You find out the lawyer's in with the chief of police. And you go to some sort of governor or leader who's involved with the politics. You find out that he's part of the whole deal. Everything's corrupt. You have no place to go. Justice is complete. That's the way that most people in the world live today. Okay, so the point that I would make is that in most places throughout the world, this concept of justice is perverted because it's usually either might makes right, or if you have money, that's the people that are able to make buy-offs. If you have power because you're well-known, you're able to somehow pervert justice. Every once in a while, you know, you can look at America for all the various times that things, you know, happen in America where you're like, it's bad, the whole judicial system's all whack and everything's messed up and everybody knows OJ whacked his wife how did he get off bottom line is that every once in a while some guy's got a lot of money he's able to somehow get his way out of the whole scenario so a guy like OJ can get off everybody knows the guy's guilty but he's well known he's got a lot of money he's able to kind of figure out some way to get out of it so the point that I would make is this you and I we sleep on this fact of justice we can lay our heads down at night knowing that there is a system in place, in order to somehow take care of the innocent. So here's the point. God is a just judge. And God will render a righteous judgment to all who violate his law. So some of you right now will be like, sweet, I know one of these days he's going to get them because I sit here, I keep it all, I'm good. You're going to find out that's not the attitude that you want to have. If your mentality is, I'm doing a good job, Thank you. God will take care of all them out there. You don't understand Christianity. You really don't understand it. This is one of this. This let me put it this way. This very concept right here is oftentimes is what has caused or ca- created this us and them mentality in Christianity. It's caused you know the right ones to go out and fight and attack the bad people. You don't understand it. We're all the bad people. I'll talk about that in a second here. So the reality is that we see in the Bible that the law of God is actually written down in two places. The first place, Romans 2 verse 14 tells us it's written down in our hearts. The second thing is we know that the law is also written down in the scripture. So the first place the law is written down in our hearts, we have some sense of justice. This is why I said there are universal things that we all look at. And what I mean by universal is that you can go to any tribe in some sort of rainforest, in some sort of third world country, and find this little tribe of, say, 200 people. And, or you can go into New York City. Regardless of where you go, and you were to walk in there and be like, hey, is it okay for a daddy to be a pedophile and molest his young daughter? Every culture would say, that's horrendous. The dude should be killed. Right. He should be. That's horrible. No daddy should ever take advantage of his young innocent little daughter like that but the reality is is we have these universal things that we're aware of we just know it's not right that's one of the evidences that we know there's a god it's because god says his law is actually written on everybody's heart so we understand to some degree more or less so his point is that everywhere we turn whether in our heart or upon God's word himself, God's word itself, we understand that justice is revealed. God's justice, God's law is seen. So the next thing I want you to notice, the next thing I'll point out here is people. People as being evil and righteous. The first thing we see, God, God is good and righteous. People, on the other hand, are not good and righteous. People, on the other hand, are perennially evil and unrighteous. All right? All humanity is unjust. We're all sinful. We're all law-breaking. And here's the two ways in which we do it. We do it either by external actions. External actions. These are external things that we do. Either by committing rape or murder or adultery or stealing or taking advantage of the poor, innocent, and the oppressed. And we exploit them. And we just take advantage of stuff that we shouldn't be doing. Or the internal motivations. This is the things that we may do out of good, uh, or that might be good, might be nice, but in reality we do them with bad motivations. We do them because we want to be recognized. We do them because we want a raise. We do them because, you know, something else, there's an ulterior motive that's sort of promoting or pushing that 
type of idea to do that. So to put, the, to put, put it kind of simply this way, what it really boils down to is this. You have people that are filthy externally. These could be, you know, what oftentimes the church identifies as that's the sinner, that's the, you know, pedophiler, that's the guy that does this or that. But then you also have sinners that are just as bad, except they're internal. It's evil on the internal part. So what you need to know is Jesus actually himself writes or speaks to the Pharisees of his day. Here's what he says, Luke chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees, who, love, who were lovers of money, he says they heard these things and they ridiculed Jesus. And he says, and then Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourself. There's our word, justify, before men, but God knows your hearts. So here's what Jesus is implying to these guys. He says, you know, you guys outwardly, externally, you look righteous. You look holy. You read your Bibles. You carry them with you. You have these big scrolls with you. You memorize large portions of Scripture. They would walk around with these prayer boxes on their foreheads, basically identifying the fact that they're just always praying. And inside those little prayer boxes, they would have a little copy of the Torah or a little copy of the Ten Commandments or something like that or a little copy of what was called, um, um, I can't remember the name of it, but basically a little prayer that says that the Lord our God is one God. You shall worship the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. They would walk around with that particular type of prayer in it. And so everybody would look at them and be like, oh, those guys are holy. I mean, they love God. They read their Bibles. They help the widows. They take care of the orphans. They're always like serving other people. They're memorizing huge passages of scripture. They know how to teach the Bible. They're at church every single Saturday on the Shabbat. They're always giving their money to the poor. They're always helping everybody. These guys look really good. Jesus says to him, he says, no, the problem is, is your wickedness, your evil, your defilement is all internal. Because everything you do, you do to be seen by other people. Everything you do is with sort of this attitude of looking down with, you know, anger and frustration and judgment upon everybody outside your little circle of friends. He says, so you're just as evil as the blatant sinner. One of the best depictions of this is in the story, what we typically call the prodigal son. I don't know if that's the best description of that story, because it's really not the story of the prodigal son, per se. You can, if you want to extend it, it's the story of the prodigal son and the apparently righteous older brother. That's it. So yeah, you got a son who's the prodigal. He's the runaway. He's the sinner. He's the bad dude. He's the black sheep of the family. But you got the older son who's righteous, holy, always by his dad's side, always reading his Bible, always quoting Bible verses, always doing the righteous thing. But really at the end of the day, both sons wanted the same thing. All they wanted was the inheritance of the father, not the father. Do you know that? That's it. They wanted, God's, they wanted the father's goods, but not the dad. That's the way we are. That's the way we are. All of us sin. All of us are trying some way, somehow, some way to figure out ways to get God's goods. Because everything there is, is God's goods. God created it all. So either by externally trying to gather things for ourselves to get God's goods outwardly, externally, and therefore we sin because we're driven by this covetousness, I will do whatever I can to obtain that thing. For example, this is one of the reasons why idolatry sort of is kind of the linchpin to lead into all other types of sins. It all starts with idolatry. So I'll give you an example. If I love things, if I'm in love with things, <laughs> as a result of loving things, I will stop at nothing to get that, to secure that. So if someone's in my way, I'll whack them. I'll kill them to get out get them out of the way so I can get the thing. If it means stealing something, I'll get that thing. I will break every other commandment of God just to get that thing that I love. It's all trying to obtain the goods of God without submitting to him. The same thing is with this internal motivation. I will do everything that I can to ultimately get the goods of God, except the only difference with the religious person is he says, I'll be righteous, I'll do good, I'll serve at church, I'll give money away to the poor, I'll read my Bible, I'll pray, I'll show up at prayer meetings, I'll do all the religious stuff. One of the best ways to know if that's you is how do you treat other people? I mean, if you're the type of person that's always looking at everybody else out there and calling down fire from heaven on them because they're not part of your tribe, 
because they don't worship the same way that you do, because they don't think theologically the same way that you do, because they don't read the same authors you do, because they don't dress the same way that you do, because they, you know, engage in other types of liberties that you don't feel free to do. Maybe they drink wine and you don't because in your mind you're like, you can't do that. If you judge and criticize and condemn, it's very possible you're trying to be justified based upon your religion. You don't get justification by faith, by grace. You don't get it. And therefore you will walk out of step, the way Paul says, with the gospel. So with that being said, take a look at a couple other things. People that are both evil and unrighteous. Here's some of the realities is because at the end of the day, our condition before God is really bad. It's really bad. All of us. All of us are in a really bad condition. All sin is what the Bible says. We've fallen short of the glory of God. So some of us, you might, again, just try to justify it off and be like, I'm not that bad. We sometimes think, well, maybe God will grade like a curve. Here's what we're oftentimes guilty of doing. We oftentimes find the worst person possible. And we're like, you know what? I'm nothing like them. And if your grid of trying to understand righteousness is somewhere between Billy Graham and Bernie Madoff, you're like, I, I know I'm not as wicked as that dude who stole billions of dollars from everybody. And I, I know I'm not as good as Billy Graham, but I'm somewhere maybe hmm, up here, right? I'm definitely not down there. I'm not that bad. We will oftentimes be very quick to judge everybody else. But really, the scale that we need to look at is not Billy Graham, Bernie Madoff, any other type of murder or pedophile or whatever. Really, the scale is Jesus. How do you compare to Jesus? That's who you should be looking at. How do you fare? Because Jesus did everything the Father did. He loved God with all of his heart, always sought God. His motivations were always right. His actions were always in line with God. He was always in step with the gospel. So that's who you should be looking at. So at the end of the day, what we need to be able to see is that our condition is really bad before God. There's at least six different things that the Bible describes as to where we're at. First of all, we're sinful in our very nature. All right, there's going to be a lot of scripture in this whole entire message I got today. So here's what I want to say is uh, I was going to print out, I've got, I'm, I'm going to give you guys all my study notes if you want them. Some of you are like, no thanks. But some of you might like, I, I want this because there's a lot of scripture on here. I'm not going to be able to read through all the scripture. So I was going to print it out, but it's actually three pages. And so I thought I'd save the paper and the ink. And if you guys want them, I'll actually put them on my blog. And uh, hopefully by the end of today, or at worst, tomorrow, I will have a link on my Facebook going to my blog. So you can download them there on my blog. So if you're not my Facebook friend, be my Facebook friend. And then you can download the things. Deal? Good way to do that. All right. So the first thing is sinful in our very nature. We, in our very nature, are sinful. In our very nature, the very core of who we are, what we do, what we think, the way we operate, there's this bent that one song we, we sing oftentimes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The reason is, is because there's this natural tendency, there's this bent, it's a crookedness in our heart. We, by nature, the default mode of our heart is not to seek righteousness. The default mode of our heart is to not wake up in the morning and say, God, how can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I honor you? It's not the default mode of our heart. If you have that if you think that, if you ever pray that, the only reason why you have that, think that, or pray that is because God, by grace, has actually changed your heart. The default mode of our heart is basically to act in autonomy. Just like our mom and dad, Adam and Eve, they acted in autonomy. They were given the opportunity to love, worship, serve, obey God. But as a result of choosing autonomy over obedience, they sinned. And we, their sons and daughters, continue to do the very same thing. This is what we mean by sinful in our very nature. Secondly, we're totally depraved. Some might be like, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as, you know, a, a, a white-collar thief or a white-collar criminal or a thug down in L.A. or whatever. I'm not that bad. I never killed anybody. I'm not as bad as I could be. And so the distinction oftentimes is made between uh, total depravity and utter depravity. What utter depravity basically means is that you are ultimately as bad as you can possibly be. Someone might be like, like Hitler. Sure. But the point that I would make is this. We are totally depraved through and through. Everything we do is done with this natural bent tendency towards evil, wickedness, self-centeredness, maybe even good things done with wrong motivations. You get that? That's the whole reality. 
Thirdly, we're separated from Christ. Fourth, we're hostile towards God. Creates this relationship. It's basically at the end of the day, Adam and Eve, they're choosing to sin, are continuing to choose and sin, to walk in sin, walk in rebellion against God, is the equivalent to basically giving God our middle finger. Say, I don't want you. I maybe want your goods, and I'll do whatever I can to somehow get your goods, even if it means I'll steal them, and even if it means I'll be religious. I'll do what I can to get your goods, because I want your goods, but I don't want you. God says at the end of the day, you're, you're living in hostility towards me. You don't understand. I'm the life giver. And you're walking in hostility towards me. Fifthly, Jesus even put it this way. He says, you are sons of the devil, children of Satan. All right? Sixthly, we're spiritually dead. Paul just summarizes the whole condition of humanity and just says, we are spiritually dead, meaning our hearts. We just don't desire God as the foremost passion of our lives by nature. By nature. We just don't. By nature. We are glory thieves. By nature, we belittle God. By nature, we sin. By nature, we want to live autonomously, separate, and independent from God. Much the same way a two-year-old toddler, who may be the joy and the delight of your eyes, constantly looks you in the face and says, no, or mine, and keeps saying that. Is there any connection between that, a child learning as their first words, mine, and no, and offspring of Adam and Eve who do the same thing with God? Some of us, we look at our lives, we're like, man, why is life so hard? Why are things difficult in this world? Why does it seem as if everything I put my hands to fights back and resists and pushes back. I mean, you can be a father or a parent. You find parenting is not easy. There's no manual that came attached to the foot. Nothing is, there's, there's nothing more difficult than parenting. You might be a dude and you're like, I work really hard. As hard as I work, it's very difficult to get the raise that I want. It's very difficult to get the respect from the people in my environment that I really want. It's very difficult because everything I put my hands to seems to at some point push back. You like do stuff out in the yard. You plant grass. You manicure your lawn. And you find out three days later, you go outside just to enjoy it. There's like all sorts of dandelions come up in the middle of the sun and they're mocking you while you sip your lemonade. They're mocking you. And the whole point of the matter is that God says that when Adam and Eve sinned, he pronounced a curse upon all creation. And he basically said, by the sweat of your brow, the all creation will do to you what you do to me, which is reject and resist me always. God says, I want you to feel what I feel every day. You'll feel it. You'll raise kids, they'll fight. You'll get married, you and your spouse will fight. You'll start a job, it'll be hard. You'll go through school, you'll constantly find, unless you fight to maintain good grades, you'll get bad grades. Everything in life is in a stage of breaking, decay, constant brokenness. And God says, I want you to understand, the earth, the world, everything is doing to you what you constantly do to me, which is resist me, to fight against me, to neglect me. It's part of the curse that God brought. So the condition of mankind is really bad. It's not good. Which brings us to the next thing, which is this problem of righteousness. At the end of the day, really it boils down to this. God is righteous, we're not. That's the problem. That's the problem. God's really good. I mean, we can look at what God has to say. We can affirm that God's law is right. We can affirm that the things that God says are really good. We can say adultery is bad. It's really, that makes a lot of sense. Man, adultery, man, if you just look at its implications and what it does, it's really bad. People walking around drunk, whacking other people, that's really good. That's a, that's a good law to not want to do that. All these things are really good. They help society function. They help kind of keep the streets clean. They help it make it safe so that your little children can ride their bikes on the street without getting hit or hurt or slipping on some sort of big thing of throw up. And it's all good. It makes society function really well. But the problem is God's righteous. All the things that he says are really good. But we're not. We're not righteous. We don't operate in the same level that God has established, we resist God. We fight against God. We want to be autonomous, away from God, separate from God. So the real question that really begs to be answered is this. 
how could God, because we know in our Bibles that there are some people that are made right with God. That's what we read in Galatians. Paul says, but you, talks about them as brothers and sisters. So there's some sort of familial type relationship that's going on here that has happened where maybe before they weren't brothers, sisters, now they are brothers and sisters. They were once maybe not part of God's family, now they are part of God's family. So something happened. So the reality is this. God is creator, he's king, he's lawgiver, he's judge. As humanity, we resist, we fight, we push against God, we don't like God's laws, and we still hope to try to maintain some semblance of life. Adam and Eve, when they first lived in autonomy, the promise basically that they had was, you eat this, you'll be like God. They ate it, and they discovered they weren't made like God. It was a lie. It was a trick. It was a deception. It was a hook that was covered by bait. They ate the bait, not knowing they swallowed the hook, and they were destroyed. They lost their freedom rather than finding freedom. They lost their life rather than living. This is what sin does, guys. This is one of the reasons why God is a good God. He says, don't sin. Sin binds you. It blinds you. It destroys you. It ruins your life. And you ultimately, at the end of the day, become enslaved to it. So you are not free. you got to understand the heart of the gospel is to not just provide a bunch of new laws so religious people can get all arrogant now over. It's not what it's about. And unfortunately, a lot of Christianity views it that way, lives it that way at least, maybe not thinks that way, but that's the way it comes across. The whole point of the gospel is to free us. So we're not bound by sin. So we're not bound by religious oppression. So we're not bound in our souls by all sorts of things that just suck life out of us but that we would be free. Do you understand that? He really is a good God. So the real question is, how could God possibly make right, or to put another phrase, justify us without himself becoming unjust? How can God do that? So if God is just, he's a good judge, like Peter, uh, Paul tells us in Timothy, he's a righteous judge, how can God do this without himself becoming unjust? So if God renders a verdict over your life and says, you're right with me now. Everything's good. We're all good. Yeah, you sinned. You belittled my whole name forever. And, you know, just because, yeah, you started going to church now. Okay, I'll, I'll accept you. Um, how, how can God just sweep our sin under the rug without himself not becoming unjust? Like a judge who renders a verdict against a complete criminal who deserves a death sentence but doesn't get the death sentence because the judge a little bit you know took a bribe how do, how does god do this and so this is the real dilemma that we need to kind of tackle because oftentimes at this point sometimes people ask the question and the question sort of typically goes like this it's a big argument the argument is is how can god if he's loving how can any god who's loving send anybody to hell or judge anybody so the big issue oftentimes in people's minds is if God is so loving, so kind, so good, how can this good God send anybody to hell or sentence anybody to any type of judgment? That's really not that difficult for, I think, any of us to understand or comprehend or actually accept if we're just honest with ourselves. If we really, I mean, I think we're just honest. It's like asking, how can a good judge, a loving judge, uh, you know, let the dude who, you know, raped and murdered that guy's wife and two daughters, how, how can that good judge let them go? We, we short-circuit our minds, all right? We hear that, and we're just like, we pull a blue screen, just like a, a PC, and we're like, it doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense. It's not righteous. It's not right. And the real question is not, how can a loving God actually sentence somebody or confine somebody to an eternal judgment but the real question that's sort of scandalous is this. How can a just God welcome any of us? Welcome anybody who's guilty. How can he do that? That's the real scandal. How can a good God, a just God, actually welcome anybody who's offended him without himself being unjust? So this kind of leads us to this next sec section of with regard to justification. What does this look like? What does this mean? 
The word justification, I'm going to try to give a little bit of a flesh, uh, fleshing out of this. The idea of justification basically means to make righteous or to declare righteous. Let me make sure that I, I backtrack on a little bit. Not make righteous, but declare righteous. It's the idea of a word that comes out of the courtroom. It's the rendering of a judge or a verdict from the judge saying, I render your sentence or render you or your account as just or righteous. Now, you got to understand this because the reason why I changed my words is that justification is not God making us righteous. That's what we typically will call sanctification. I'm not even going to touch that today. All right, but God rendering us just. Here's what I mean. God does not make us righteous. This is confusing oftentimes for some because people get this confused. They look at Christians and they're like, you know what, he's supposed to be a Christian and he still is a jerk. Have you ever met that person? Some of you are like, I'm married to that guy. Let's not talk about that. But the point that I would make is this. Is that sometimes people stumble over this. Like, I, I don't get it. I thought making, becoming a Christian makes you good, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Becoming a Christian is not necessarily making you or a guarantee that you're going to be good. This is one of the reasons why there's a lot of really nice people in hell. And there's a really, a lot of rotten people in heaven. A lot of rotten people. People today that maybe, I mean, I, once, I believe one, state, one day we're going to get to heaven, we're going to have changed hearts and changed attitudes. There's a lot of people right now, I even kind of look at them like, I can spend eternity with that dude. I'm not super excited about that. I'm sure my heart will be changed. But the point that I want to make is this, is that this is, this is what kind of led to what the great reformer by, guy by the name Martin Luther declared. Uh, he said in Latin, simul justus et peccator. What that means is simul, in English, simultaneously simul, justus means just, simultaneously just, sinner and righteous. So a person is simultaneously just and a peccator, right? So if you've ever kind of been wondering about that in your life, you're like, man, I feel this constant tension. I feel like I'm right with God, but at the same time, I'm constantly sinning. That's why. It's like Luther said, you are simultaneously just in the sight of God, and yet you're still a sinner. At the same time. And that will continue to go on that way until this body dies, and you go to be with Jesus, and there'll give you a brand new body, and things will be different. You'll be made in the image of Christ. Until then, simultaneously both just and sinner. So the point that I want to make is this, is that this idea of justified takes on this form, this, you know, there's uh, noun tenses that are used here, as well as verb tenses, and the idea is that just, or this concept of being right or righteous, what God does is he takes this righteousness that comes from Jesus, comes from himself, and he imputes it into people that are unjust, people that are unrighteous. And he declares a sentence over them and says, even though you're a sinner, I declare you just. This action, the Bible describes as justified. Let me give you an example. Try to make it as simple as I can. All right? All these lights, you guys notice you all have new lights? Did you notice you can actually read your Bible? Everybody knows that? Good. That's a good thing, huh? All right. So we've got new lights. Now, if I were to turn these lights off, in order for these lights to work, you've got to have electricity. All right? So in order for these things to actually function and work so you can read your Bible, uh, electricity needs to get into these lights. Now, these lights don't actually work in and of themselves. They need electricity in them to actually function. So electricity needs to electrify these lights in order for them to work, in order for them to have some sort of functionality. In the same way, very similar way, to some degree, more or less, I'm sure there's flaws in this metaphor. Anyways, the point I would make is this, is that in order for you to be made right with God, you need the justness, the right, righteousness, or the rightness that's not in you. You don't have it. You can't possess it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't be religious. Because through and through, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how do you and I get justified? Same way the lights get electrified. <laughs> it involves a foreign action. And this is exactly what Paul says. Justification basically is God's foreign action whereby he declares over us, you're just. How? Well, three things I want to look at very quickly, we're done. First of all, we see that men 
and women, we try to come up with our own solutions. At the end of the day, we realize that something's broken or wrong in this world. We do. We recognize it. All of us do. All of us do. Unfortunately, we don't all agree on the solutions, nor do we agree on the problem. But all of us know there is a problem. And so throughout all history, all people have some degree, somehow, depending upon the amount of money and the amount of privilege and the amount of power they have, have tried to put their hand to the solution, or put their hand to the plow and bring about a solution. Whether it be saying we need health, health uh, care reform for everybody, that'll be sort of a step in towards of bringing about a better society. Or we need literacy. We need better, more literate people who know how to read. We need more health care. That's, that's the solution. We need people to make sure that they can read and study and understand mathematics and all these other larger concepts that much of the people throughout the world don't have. That will actually help bring about some sort of self-awareness, bring about an identity for you and I so that we can live, we can have life, and everything will be good. These are all attempts and ways to somehow uh, reform the sinfulness that we constantly feel inside. This is one of the reasons why oftentimes we keep doing this. Some people uh, might look at that and be like, ah, no, the, the answer doesn't lie in society and social, you know, trying to cure so- society's ills. The answer lies in being religious. So some people are like, you know, I'll be religious. I'll go to church every day. Maybe the answer lies in church. Maybe the answer lies in some sort of a new social circle whereby you can find a new social circle. And then you'll find, you'll think that you'll find some sort of identity. You'll justify your life. You'll give yourself a reason to live. And you find all of these specific areas throughout life, even though they may promise much, they rarely deliver anything. They rarely deliver anything. In fact, if anything, they just bring you into a new form of bondage. So the religious person thinks religion is the way to be made right, to be justified. Well, you actually just end up becoming in bondage to religion. So now you have to be angry and frustrated and very uptight with everybody that disagrees with you. You have to because your entire life is justified by your religion. Or if you're like, you know, you're the frat boy that just has to have sex with as many women as you can. And that's the way that you're going to identify your life. That's the way you're going to somehow bring yourself to a greater awareness of privilege and prestige. And so now you've got to live with that sort of as the driving factor of your life. And everything becomes, you're in bondage to that now. So that's why, you know, you go without sex for two weeks. You're like, oh my gosh, life is just horrible. I'm a horrible, i got to do something. You know, I've got to change my deodorant and get a job or something. i got to get back on the bandwagon and keep doing this because you're finding justification by that. If you're a girl, you're like, I need a boyfriend. My life is found. My awareness in life is raised. My elevation of who I am is raised by always being in a relationship. And so you're trying to be justified by a relationship. You understand how all this works all throughout our life? We have all these little idols that we tuck away. Some of you might be your job. It's like everything revolves around my job. You work so hard. You focus so much every time. All your attention, your motivation, your money, your energy, your time, everything goes to the job. And you can't even rest. You can't even take a day off. Because in your mind, you're like, if I take a day off, the office is going to go down. If the office goes down, I'm not going to have money. I'm not going to have an identity. I'm not going to know who I am. I'm going to be in sort of a functioning hell. You're trying to be justified by your job. You see how this works out? We're all trying to find some sort of way to bring about a solution. And here's what God does. He offers his solution. His solution is Jesus. All right? You guys have been around here long enough to know the drill. Whenever you're like, I'm not sure exactly what the answer to that question is, just say Jesus. This is a very good possibility you're going to be right. All right? So God's solution is Jesus. What God does is he recognizes that all humanity has been aligned underneath a head of humanity that has perverted, broken, destroyed all of humanity, right? Adam is the patriarchal head of all of us. We can't get away from it. We didn't choose our parents. We were just born into our parents, all right? Just the same way that none of you can choose who your mom and dad were. You just were given them. Same way all of us are born. We're sons, daughters of Adam and Eve. So therefore, we can't pull away from that. It's just who we are. By nature, we are sinners, And so what God does to bring about a solution is to say, I'm going to bring about a new patriarchal society. I'm going to give you a new head. A new societal head. Not Adam. Not by birth. But by rebirth. In Jesus. You will be born again. Through Christ. The work on the cross. What Jesus did. 
And so this new head, this new patriarchal head, this new head, this new sociological head, this new church functioning head, Jesus, now becomes what identifies you. Therefore, you are not justified by your religious acts. You're not justified by your job. You're not justified by sexual escapades. You're not justified by your drugs, by whatever. You are justified. You are made right. You are found. You are brought home by Jesus alone. That's what happens. This is what Paul is trying to convey. And I wrap it up with this. The simple thing, he puts it this way in Romans chapter 5 verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So the one act that led to the trespass was Adam. That one act of Adam led to the, just, uh, the condemnation of all men. But also in the same way, the one act of righteousness by Jesus actually led to life for all men who trust in him. Verse 19, he says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were brought into righteousness. So here's what God's doing. He's restructuring everything. Not under Adam, but under the last Adam. A new Adam. Jesus. Jesus comes in this world. God, as a missionary, not only is God creator of all things, architect of all things, king over all things, lawmaker over all things, judge over all things, and there is a dilemma. God is righteous. We're not. But also, finally, in the most amazing way, God has also provided the solution whereby he will be savior over all things. So God, out of great kindness, great love, great mercy, sends himself, his son, into this world to take on flesh and bone. Jesus lives perfectly. you got to summarize Jesus' entirety of his life in this one reality. Everything Jesus did, he did in obedience to the word of God. You know that? Sometimes people overlook the fact of Jesus' life. But no, no, Jesus' life is significant because everything Jesus did was perfect. It was always complicit with the scripture. Always. Never out of sync with anything God ever said. All the way to the point where God, when Jesus gets baptized, the heavens open up, and the Father actually speaks to the Son. Here's what he says. This is my boy. I am so proud of him. Everything he does, I love him. He's my son. He always honors me. Everything that he does. The Bible tells us ultimately Jesus honors the Father all the way to the point of the cross because part of God's design was that Jesus would come into this world as Savior. And the way that Jesus would save us would he would, was that he would live a perfect life, the life that we didn't live, and die the life that we should have died. Meaning Jesus paid the penalty, the final penalty of all sin. The wage of sin is what? Death. The reason why death is in this world is because sin. God created man to exercise dominion over the earth. And in a crazy, ironic reversal of everything because of sin, rather than man exercising dominion over the earth, guess what happens? The earth exercises dominion over man. But Jesus comes in this world and allows the earth and allows evil to exercise all of its penalty and judgment upon him. And yet, in a radical reversal of all things, the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead exercising dominion over all things, over death, over the earth, over creation, over sin, over judgment, over hell, over sin, over everything we've done, over everything we failed to do. Jesus did it all for you because the great love of God displayed to the cross. This is how great our God is. This is absolutely good news. This is why Paul identifies it. This is gospel. Gospel is not what you have to now do for God. Gospel is what God has done for you already. Gospel now gets proclaimed. Because it speaks of an event that happened. This is what God did for you. The final thing, I wrap it up with this. Is some of the benefits of justification are these. I'm going to go through these very quickly. One forgiveness of sins. Secondly, justification brings about peace with God. 
God brings us into a place where we're now we're at peace with God. We're not enmity with God anymore. God's not your enemy. Listen to me, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, do you know that God's not mad at you? Do you know that? Some of you live your whole life as a Christian, and you think God's upset with you. Maybe you're even here today at church because you're like, oh, I know God's mad at me. i got to go at least go to church. Maybe that'll make him happy. He's already happy. He already loves you. He's not mad at you anymore. He's not upset. God's not capricious. He's not like a junior hire. We have no idea what he's going to do from one day to the next. He is a consistent God who when he says he's at peace with us, you can take that to the bank. You can take your head and stick it on the pillow and sleep on that. You understand that? There's peace with God. The next thing we see is there's escape from God's wrath and condemnation. Romans 8 talks about this. Romans 5 talks about this. Verse 9, verse, chapter 5 says, since we are now been justified by his blood, we'll also be saved from his wrath, from the wrath of God that's to come. The reality is, is that there is a day of judgment that will come, day, come someday. And the fact of the matter is, is that we can know what, we can know the rendering of that judgment one day today. Because through Jesus, he bore all of my sin. So Jesus actually sees, God sees me in the same way that he sees his son. He loves his son. Therefore, because I'm in Christ, he loves me. He's not angry with his son. He loves his son. He loves you. Fourth thing, we see that there's a spirit-enabled empowerment to do good works, to act like God. At the end of the day, when God saves us, he saves us so that now we have the heart of God. Now we begin to follow God. We live like God. We want to be like God. We are now free, actually, to love other people. You know that Christians really ought to be the most free people loving everyone else? Really, that's the way we ought to be. When people hear about pre- others that are hurting or people that are going through difficult times in life, you know, sick or whatever, it should be Christians that recognize, man, God's been so good to me. He's been so just to me. I was the person that was sick and hurting and broken and and marginalized and God came to me and so therefore if God came to me the worst of all sinners the worst of all marginalized people there on the side of the Lord, I want to go help other people that are just like the way I was that's what God does the Bible describes it as good works the fifth thing is this ultimately there'll be glorification and here's what this basically means is that there is this weight of glory that God is stacking up for you that one day he will bring you to some of you right now, you might just look at your life and you feel the weight of sin. You're like, the weight of sin is heavy. It's tough. Jesus even describes, he says, come unto me who are heavy laden and burdened down by life's difficulties, life's trauma, life's sin. Just come unto me. But since we are familiar with this motif of heaviness, the Bible also says that there's also another heaviness that's even bigger, that's more powerful, that's more profound than the weight of sin that oftentimes grabs our attention above and beyond other things. And he says this type of heaviness or weightiness that will one day be revealed to us is this concept of glory. We will have and be brought into this unbelievable heaviness, weightiness, substance, substantialness of God's glory. We'll be brought into that Simply because God, who takes sinful people, like you and I, just like you and I, and chooses to demonstrate kindness and affection and grace, not because of our religion, not because how good we read our Bible, not because of how literate we are in the scriptures, not because of grandma who is a great saint, not because of anything, only because of Jesus, period. That's how we've been made right with God. A word that possibly could have been used, even though it's not an English word, it's the word righteousfied. <laughs> it's the way he would, he would make us righteousfied. It's not a word. So we choose the word justified. It means the same idea. So here's the great transaction. God takes our sin, our sinfulness, places it on his son, and in turn takes all the righteousness, the beauty that he sees in his son, And he declares and renders us in his verdict and sees us in the same way that he sees our son. Forgiven, 
made righteous, declared righteous, and seen in a right relationship with God. That ought to humble us. So how do we live out the sense of justification? How do we live it out? How do we understand it? How do we appropriate it in our lives? One, we confess sin. We confess sin. And then we believe in our hearts. We trust what God has done. We trust Jesus. This is why the Bible might say we are justified by faith. But we're also justified by grace. Meaning it's a gift. God gifts to us. But the means by which God gives to us that gift, the means by which we reach out and we take that gift, is by faith. We have confidence. We trust God. That means we confess, we trust our sin to God. We confess our lives. We give our lives over to God. We say, God, I believe, I trust you with my life. Unlike Adam and Eve, who took their life from you and says, we will make our own decisions, thank you, I will give my life to you, like the new Adam, who gave his life for you, to you. That's how I want to live. And that's how life gets brought into ourselves. I'm going to pray. We're going to wrap this up. I'm going to have Nick come on up. That's a tabula. If you want to leave, that's fine. If you want to hang out, we're going to worship for a little bit. If you're here and you've got kids in the children's ministry, please, uh, you know, maybe relieve some of the workers right now. Um, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to respond right now. And the way that we're going to respond is we're going to give our praise and our worship and our love to Jesus. We're going to respond by partaking of communion. The reason why we partake of communion is it reminds us afresh of what Jesus did for us on the cross. That he died for me. He died for you. That God is not mad at you. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to live that. Some of you need to believe that. If you're a Christian, you've trusted God. God sees you in the same way that he sees his beloved son. So I'm going to pray. We'll worship, we'll sing, confess sin, partake of communion. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. Pray right now for anybody here today right now, God, that is struggling with their sin, that they feel this weight of sinfulness on their shoulders. God, I pray that you would help them to confess those things to you, to lay them down at your feet, to ask you to wash them and cleanse them, knowing that, God, you will render a verdict over their lives that is the same verdict that you would have rendered over your son who you raised from the dead. God, help my brothers and sisters here. If there's any here right now that are not Christians, people that don't know you, people that have never really trusted you, people maybe have thought they were Christians, but they aren't Christians. God, I pray that you would help them to see the fact that maybe they've been trusting in religion and not Jesus. Trusting in alternative things that have always left them broken. But God, I pray that you would bring them to a place of just trusting in Jesus alone, who's our Savior.